You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world, covering myriad issues caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine, your host and producer from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. On Sunday, September 3rd, Ukrainian President Zelensky announced that Alexei Reznikov, Ukraine's Minister of Defense, would be replaced. Reznikov resigned the next day. Reznikov has served as Defense Minister since the beginning of the full-scale invasion by Russia. He had played a significant role in international relations. It is anticipated that he will be reassigned to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. Our guest, Ambassador Daniel Fried, played a key role in designing and implementing American policy in Europe in the course of his 40-year Foreign Service career after the fall of the Soviet Union. He was a national security advisor to Presidents Clinton and Bush, ambassador to Poland, and assistant secretary of state for Europe. He helped craft the policy of NATO enlargement to Central European nations and, in parallel, NATO-Russia relations Ambassador Fried, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thanks for having me. The removal of Reznikov came after a scandal last August when investigative journalists reported that military jackets were being procured at inflated prices indicating corruption. Also, what were to have been winter jackets were exposed as summer jackets of lower quality than what was needed by soldiers. Reznikov denied these allegations. The outgoing defense ministers, Alexei Reznikov, did a credible job. The defense minister is respected for the job he's done. And I have not heard any accusations that he personally was corrupt, and that's a good thing. But there were scandals associated with the defense ministry having to do with contracts and corruption. It seems to be a case that it happened on his watch that he has to take responsibility. And I think that Zelensky, in his drive against corruption, which the United States is encouraging, I think he just decided to make a change. The Ukrainian who's replacing him is Rustam Umerov, the Crimean Tartar, who's now the head of the state property agency and is regarded as someone who's quite serious. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says that Russia is ready to return to the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Can you explain the Black Sea Grain Initiative? 
and what it proposes? This was a complicated initiative, which essentially allowed Ukrainian exports of grain and other food commodities to leave by the Black Sea. It was an elaborate mechanism organized by the Turks. There were actually two parallel agreements. It worked reasonably well until Putin canceled it. The Russians seemed to calculate that the need to get grain out of Ukraine that was so great that he could extract concessions from the West in exchange for letting the grain go. Now, those concessions were this to lift sanctions on various Russian companies. I don't think anyone will agree to it. Um, the reaction to the Russian termination of the deal was not good in Africa and the Middle East. The Russians got a lot of criticism from African countries who understood correctly that there would be a spike in grain prices and their people would suffer. So I think there was some pushback. President Erdogan of Turkey visited Russia, met with Putin, but it's too early to say that the grain deal is back on. We'll see what happens. What is Ukraine's position on Africa and the Black Sea Grain Initiative? They were part of the negotiations. They were working with the Turks. They have maintained good relations with Turkey. Turkey has maintained good relations with them, but also has ties with Putin. So it was a logical thing for the Ukrainians and Turks to work together. The Ukrainians have put a lot of effort into a diplomatic process that has brought together some Europeans and African Middle East countries of the so-called Global South. That group has had two meetings at fairly senior levels, one in Copenhagen and the other, I think, in August in Jeddah, attended at senior levels by U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan went to Jeddah. And it was a discussion that was not intended to produce an agreement, but discuss the outlines and principles of a diplomatic settlement of the Ukraine war based on Ukrainian, not Russian postulates. That is, the Ukrainians were there and active. And what they have done, I think wisely, is to reach out to the so-called global south, make their case, and point out to countries which are inclined to look askance at colonialism that Russia is fighting really a, a war of colonial succession in Ukraine. The Russians treating Ukraine as a colony and fighting to put it down. The Russians are fighting a war of empire. Ukrainians are fighting a war of defense and national survival. And the Ukrainians are putting a lot of effort into this outreach, and I think it's wise. If you are someone who believes in the anti-colonial or anti-imperialist cause, you're going to have sympathy for Ukraine if it's at all explained to you in accurate terms. And I think the Ukrainians are wise to focus on this. What is Russia doing in Syria? And how does that affect Ukraine? The Russians went into Syria to support Assad soon after the initial revolts against him during the Arab Spring. Putin doesn't like to see dictators overthrown by popular movements. 
So the Russians sent forces to Syria to support Assad, and they've been doing so ever since. It doesn't affect the Ukrainians directly, but Russia is acting to the degree it can as a champion of autocrats and dictators when Russia feels that it has any historic or other national interest. Now, the Ukrainians are not going to have the time to focus on Syria, but the Ukrainians have framed their war as one of national defense and defense of democracy. What President Zelensky says, and the Ukrainian foreign minister and other Ukrainian political figures is, we are fighting for the general cause of freedom because that is linked to our national cause. Our national cause is linked to wider universal values. This is a theme with deep roots in that part of Europe. The Poles and, and Lithuanians in the 19th century who made the same case that they were fighting for their nation from the Russian Empire, but also in the name of universal values like democracy. So you had in the 19th century, Poles supporting other movements of national independence and freedom. Back to the 18th century, if you had a Polish general supporting the Hungarian insurgents against the Habsburg monarchy who were repressed by Russian soldiers in 1848. And when the Ukrainians use the phrase, we're fighting for your freedom and ours, they are deliberately borrowing an old Polish 19th century slogan. The point is that national causes can take nationalist form. That is, my nation is superior to your nation, and my cause allows me to commit atrocities in the name of my nation. But the Ukrainian national cause appears to be the opposite. It is an identification between their national patriotism and universal values. Now, that's powerful stuff, and it's a good answer to Russia's ridiculous accusation that the Ukrainians are Nazis. A Jewish president of Ukraine nominated a Muslim Tartar to be the defense minister. So if the Ukrainian parliament approves the nomination, you will have a country that Putin says is pro-Nazi, with the Jewish president and a Muslim defense minister, which means that Ukrainian national identity has crystallized, not in a nationalist ethnic form, but in a civic definition of nationhood, which allows for all peoples of whatever ethnicity or religion to identify as Ukrainians, that's where their loyalty lies. Now, that's a powerful and very positive crystallization of national identity. And the Ukrainians have been moving in this direction steadily, really ever since the Orange Revolution. And that puts the lie to the Kremlin accusations, which are so flimsy I'm surprised they keep at it and hope that there will be various suckers who buy into it. We're listening to Ukraine 242. I am your host and producer, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening. In the course of his 40-year Foreign Service career, our guest, Ambassador Daniel Freed, 
played a key role in designing and implementing American policy in Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union. He was a national security advisor to Presidents Clinton and Bush, ambassador to Poland, and assistant secretary of state for Europe. He helped craft the policy of NATO enlargement to Central European nations and, in parallel, NATO-Russia relations. He is sharing what he knows about Ukraine and Russia and how they conduct government on the world stage. Ambassador Freed, you were quoted as saying that Prigozhin's recent death on a downed private airplane seems like something out of the Godfather series. Well, I was being colorful, but I heard from several people here in Georgia where I'm at a conference that the gangster model does serve as a useful guide to Kremlin leadership in Russia. Prigozhin's act against Putin was not followed by immediate retaliation. Pogosian was allowed to be at liberty. He even met with Putin. Many, including the State Department and Secretary Blinken, said this was not the end of the story. And I don't think anyone was surprised when Pogosian was killed. Putin has a way of disposing of his enemies. Now, the body has not been identified by anybody but the Russians, so I have to put a footnote here that let's assume he's dead arrest the guy for sedition, give him a trial, that's one thing. But to have him assassinated in a spectacular fashion felt like less of a modern state and more of a mob code. So that's what I meant. Given the track record of the Kremlin in dealing with enemies, suspicions that this was a Kremlin-inspired or ordered hit are understandable and probably accurate. The pattern of Putin's enemies dying falling out of windows, being shot across the river from the Kremlin in their apartment building, being poisoned in various ways. Wagner gravesite across Russia have been eradicated. This is a pattern. What does the removal of these grave markers do? Is this part of an attempt to completely erase them? After Prigozhin's death, the question arose whether the Kremlin would try to take over Wagner to maintain the utility of this group and its assets and its connections, particularly in Africa. But when I heard reports that Wagner grave sites were being erased, it occurred to me that the Kremlin was trying to erase Wagner. They may try to take over some of its assets in Africa, but I think they are moving against Wagner more generally. And that means that there will be a certain loss of efficiency of the Kremlin operations in Africa. But this seems to be a choice they've made based on the apparent danger that Prigozhin represented. Now, it's not the only paramilitary group, but it is the most prominent one. I mean, he launched a mutiny and rolled toward Moscow, creating panic across the country and the leadership. So I think Putin has decided to move against Wagner as a group, and the various signs we're seeing indicate that that is the case. Does the Wagner group have any power at this point now that Prigozhin is presumed dead? They have some organized power 
in Africa, maybe elsewhere where they have forces. I don't know their exact state of readiness, and I don't know what connections with other military units they might have. I tend to doubt that's a usable asset. If the Wagner Group had it before, they probably don't have it now. And I don't think their profile and reputation and the, the shadow they cast in Russia is not going to be what it was before, I don't think ever. I think the death of Prigozhin and other senior officers of Wagner has put an end to that. What are the Wagner Group assets in African countries? The Wagner Group was active in a number of African countries and in Syria, and they seem to be both acting as mercenaries on behalf of various African parties or governments, and at the same time, they seem to be in control of various lucrative African assets, essentially stealing money from the various African nations. So an, an ugly business. Where could these mercenaries go? Well, they would be well advised not to go back to Russia. Um, I think they're all in trouble. The odds are significant that they would be punished. They've signed up for a unit which is regarded by the Kremlin as disloyal, and their position is vulnerable. Is there another mutinous group like Wagner ready to step up and replace them? How would I know? Seriously, (laughs) if there were, the last thing they would want to do would be known by observers in the West. You're asking an interesting question, which is, How much dissent is out there because of Putin's unsuccessful war in Ukraine? And what form might this dissent, if it exists, take? If it does exist, they're not going to tell anybody. And if there's any lesson from Prigozhin's mutiny, it's don't strike unless you're ready to win. Don't improvise. Anyone who is contemplating moving against Putin would be well advised to keep their heads down and not be known to any American or European. But I think there's a missing historical factor. When Russia loses wars, it puts pressure on the system from within. The Crimean War, the Russo-Japanese War, World War I, and Afghanistan were all wars that Russia lost. And in each case, it produced either regime change or a very near thing, or in the case of the, the loss in the Crimean War and loss in Afghanistan, it produced serious attempts at systemic reform. But in all cases, the regime was challenged or overthrown. And I think that if the Ukraine war continues to go badly, or if there is, in fact, a Ukrainian battlefield success, which cannot be guaranteed, but also cannot be ruled out, right? Ukrainians are advancing in the South. If Ukraine manages to put Russian forces in a compromised position by, for example, getting within rocket range of Crimea, Russia's military position in Ukraine will be damaged, and that may mean the war is lost. That would put pressure on Putin. This is his war. He made the decision. If you remember the televised meeting right before the war, where Putin was seen to be browbeating some of his key people into accepting the war, this is Putin's thing. He owns it. He won't be able to get rid of it. And if Russia wins, if it succeeds, if it outlasts Ukraine, if the West is as fickle and folds as Putin seems to still expect, he can come out of this all right. But the odds, I think, are somewhat greater that 
Russia's effort will fail, in which case Putin could be in trouble. I'm not saying it's inevitable. I'm saying that it's possible and not fanciful. I think that's where we are right now. Putin's opponents, uh, Navalny, Karamurza, and Gherkin, are all jailed for their opposition to Putin. I'm wondering if they would have any success or ability to raise opposition again, if there's regime change. That's an interesting question. Russian history is filled with examples of people who are on the outs who suddenly find a place. There are various people who wouldn't be human if they didn't think they had a future in a more democratic Russia. But it is more likely that if Putin were replaced, it would be with somebody within the system. Now, there is various theories about Putin's succession. One is that after Putin, it could be worse. There's another theory that Putin could be replaced by a liberal, or Putin is replaced by someone within the system. But I recall the death of Stalin and his replacement by Malenkov, Khrushchev, and Beria. They were not liberals. This was Khrushchev when he was a Stalinist. Beria was a monster. Malenkov was a bit of a non-entity. What did these people do when they were in power? They helped end the Korean War. They reduced pressure on Germany, and they created the conditions for the negotiation of the Austrian State Treaty that got Soviet troops out of their zone of occupation in Austria and Vienna. In other words, they pulled back, not because they were liberals or wanted to be friends with the United States, but because Stalin's successors saw Russia as exposed. Stalin's hostility to the United States and the West was not sustainable. You can probably guess where I'm going with this. Putin's successors, even if not liberals, could attempt to settle the war in Ukraine, end it, on terms acceptable to Ukraine because they're exposed, because the Russian economy is weakened, because they are in trouble. And they may decide to cut their losses and do a deal. For reasons of Russian national interest in the short run, I don't think this is inevitable. I think it's a reasonable possibility. But I think the Ukrainians are fighting to compromise the Russian position, make the Russian position of holding Crimea untenable, and they have a reasonable chance of doing so. They are advancing in the South to change the military balance. But we should not assume that Putinism is triumphant. The last 40 years of Russian history have been marked not by continuity, but by discontinuity. So why should we expect anything different now? Why should we expect Putinism to go on forever when Brezhnev was followed by Gorbachev, followed by Yeltsin, followed by Putin, by all very different leaders, all moving the countries, the country in different directions? Why should we assume that Putinism is forever and why should we do a straight line projection in the future given the stresses we can see that exist in and upon Russia now? Ambassador Freed, as advisor to Clinton and Bush, did you ever meet Putin? Oh, yes. I was present in June 2001, that famous first Bush-Putin meeting that went very well. Uh, Putin approached us and his body language was open and positive, and they had a great meeting. 
where she was trying to form a personal relationship with someone whom we didn't know and in whom we had optimistic hopes. In fact, we did try, but I have to say that George W. Bush had his doubts about Putin earlier than is usually thought. But we kept trying to work with Putin throughout the Bush administration up until the Russo-George War in August uh, 2008, 15 years ago. What is Putin like? I was the senior director for, for Europe and Eurasia at the National Security Council. Later in the Bush second term, I was assistant secretary of state for Europe. So I was there for, for several Bush meetings and Rice's meetings. And I was there when he went to the Bush ranch in Crawford, Texas in November 2001. And that was a relaxed social occasion. And Putin could be charming. The Putin we know today was not deeply in evidence. Now, you can make a case that he always had ambitions to rule Russia as a, you know, a neo-Stalinist and to restore the empire. You can make that case, for which there is evidence. But all I can say is at the time, we thought there might be a better future. What we tried to do with Russia didn't work, but I'm not sorry we tried. What do you think the Trump administration has wrought with Putin? Well, you have to distinguish between Trump and the Trump administration, which contained a number of serious and capable people. Wes Mitchell, the Assistant Secretary for Europe, Fiona Hill, the Senior Director for Europe and Eurasia. I mean, these were serious people. And their policy was a policy that just about any Republican president might have followed. And then you have Trump's own approach which is very different. I remember the famous Helsinki meeting in, I think, 2019, where Trump made it clear he trusted Putin more than his own government. That's nuts. But the fact is, Trump had sympathy for Putin. He seems to have an affinity for dictators. He probably envied Putin's dictatorial powers. There has been nothing like it in the American presidency ever. I've seen many things in my career. I have seen state fighting, the State Department fighting with the Defense Department, both of them fighting with NSC. I've seen all that. What I've never seen is the NSC and state and defense all united and the president in opposition to his own government. Never saw that before. But that was the case with Trump. Ambassador Daniel Freed, thank you for... My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Miss Gridenko by the police. Our thanks to Ambassador Daniel Freed. You can contact him and read his articles at AtlanticCouncil.org. That's AtlanticCouncil.org. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg. Additional editing and production, Michael Levine. 
I am the host of Ukraine 242 and Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. To see pictures of our guests and to access our entire library of shows, go to Ukraine242.com. Thank you for tuning in. Until next week on Ukraine 242.